Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are in the midst of our series out of the book of 1 Corinthians that we've entitled Lego Church, Built to Be Together. Um, this study is, is not going to cover every verse in the book of 1 Corinthians. That would be very difficult to do in eight weeks and 16 chapters. It would be hard to do every verse. But we're hitting big themes in the book of 1 Corinthians and really driving home the central message, I believe, of the book, and that is that we are built to be together as a church, that as Christians, though different and unique, we are, we are built to be together. And because we are built to be together as a church, that is why the Lego analogy is so fitting. Because when you think of, of Lego blocks separated, they're kind of a mess. They're different sizes and shapes, and they don't do much. But under the direction of a designer, they can be put together and arranged in such a way to make something beautiful and amazing. Uh, this here is the water cube from the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Just a little something I worked up yesterday afternoon. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I had nothing to do with that except Google search. It was awesome. Uh, but, you know, you can, you can take under a designer, under direction, you can take these different pieces and parts and make something beautiful out of it. You can even make something spiritual out of it. Uh, Nancy Wance sent this to me this last week. Um, Peter, Lego your doubts. Okay, uh, okay, that's really bad. Let's, one, two, three, let's give a, a oh, one, two, three, oh, okay, you get it out of your system. But you can do some amazing things with these different parts under direction. You can put them together in such a way to make something beautiful. And this is really the way the church is. All of us, though very different in our pieces and our parts, together under the direction of the Savior, we can make something beautiful. We can be a part of his church. And that's what the encouragement of the book of 1 Corinthians is all about. And that's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks at Wildwood, continuing today. Today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 16. And really, these verses are going to hit the central issue that drives wedges between people, and that is the issue of our pride. So if you've got a Bible, open it up now to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to survey these 10 verses in two parts, to see two things from this book for us today. Uh, the first thing that we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is in verses 6 and 7, and, and that is this, that blowing up with pride blows apart togetherness. Blowing up with pride blows apart togetherness. Now, where do we see that? We see that anchored in verse 6. Uh, Paul was writing this letter to the church in Corinth, and we've talked about this each of the weeks, but Paul was kind of the founding pastor of the church in Corinth. He's the one that planted the church there. A number of people in the congregation probably trusted Christ in the time when Paul was leading the church in Corinth. And after Paul left Corinth to continue on his missionary journeys, another gentleman named Apollos came and was the leader of the church in Corinth after Paul had left. And so in the first two pastors of the church in Corinth, you have these two Christian legends, Paul and Apollos. And all kinds of division had begun to develop since Paul had left, and now even since Apollos possibly had left, divisions had come on a number of issues based on their affinity for different human leaders. Some said, I liked better when Paul was the pastor. Some said, I liked it better when 
when Apollos was the pastor. Some people said, I liked the, the, the podcast that we were getting of Peter a lot better than either Paul or uh, Apollos. But for whatever reason, there was all this division that was going on based upon their, their human pastor leaders, as well as other things. We know from later in the book, there was division that was resulting because of uh, their practice of different spiritual gifts and all these different things. And, and they, they had these divisions, and, and Paul writes in verse 6, and tells them to, to knock it off. He calls them back to unity, and he tells them the reason, the source of the disunity that they were having, and it was because they were puffing themselves up. Look at what it says in verse 6. Paul writes and says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. You may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. See, what was happening was the people in the church in Corinth were finding ways to say that they were better than somebody else. Like if we, being the church here at Wildwood, if, if you had your own system, your own ranking, your own score to say who was more spiritual than who, that's what was going on there. And, and Paul writes and says that they were puffing themselves up, saying who was better than this person was better than that person, and they were, they were puffing themselves up with things that went beyond what was written. Now, why would you have to go to things that were beyond what was written in order to determine who was better than who? Because what was written says that they're all the same. See, what was written in God's Word and what was taught by Paul was that there's a level field at the base of the cross, that no one gets to God because they were from the right family or because they were the um, smartest or because they lived the most righteous life, that the foot of the cross was, was a level playing field, and, and any hope that anyone had was found not in their righteousness, not in their, in their pedigree, not in their family tradition, any hope they had was found in Christ alone. It was level at the foot of the cross. So if you were going to try to determine who was better than who, you had to go to something beyond what was written in order to get that conclusion. If you wanted to puff yourself up and say that I'm better than you, I had to come up with a new criteria because the criteria of the Scripture says that we're all even at the foot of the cross. that makes sense? So they were going beyond what was written. Well, what, were they, what they were using to determine what was beyond what was written is, is not nearly as relevant. We've covered a number of them in the series as what we use to determine who is better than someone else. Because when we go to apply this passage, we go beyond just what was happening in Corinth and we go to take the principle and apply it to our lives. And, and you and I have become experts at determining who is more spiritual than who, going beyond what is written. What are some of the things that do this? I'm, I'm just going to use a representative of several things. There are certainly more that you could use, um, and you're going to think of things as I go through this list that, that, that make sense in your world. But one of them is the areas of education. And when you think of educating your kids, there is a, a scorecard that exists in some of our hearts about how much you love your kids. Homeschool, private school, or public school. Now, room this size, there's probably a number of different ways in which that scorecard ranks. Some people would say that it's this way or that way or the other way. But, you know, sometimes we can take how we answer that question and make it a scorecard to rank who's better than who, who cares for their kids more than others based on education choices. Another way that it happens is in the area of entertainment options. Now, sometimes you can determine who's spiritual, I mean, so I've heard, by the kinds of entertainment that are piped into someone's house. No TV, very spiritual. 
Broadcast TV, moderately spiritual. Cable TV, forget about it. Um, and we use our, our, our ideas about that as a, as a scorecard to measure. Again, it's beyond what is written. Sometimes we, we use things like the Bible that we choose to read. This isn't a big deal within Wildwood, but it, it is in different places where someone might say, you know, the King James Bible is, is the Bible. Somebody else, you know, says, if you're really spiritual, you use the King James Bible. Somebody else might say, if you're kind of spiritual, you use the New American Standard. And then somebody else might say, if, you know what, if you don't care at all about biblical truth and orthodoxy, you use the New Living Translation. Um, and others of you might put the scorecard differently, but we can become finding things beyond what is written to determine who is more spiritual than who. This is just something that we do. It happens also with, with the celebration of holidays, like Halloween. No costumes, very spiritual. Happy costumes, moderately spiritual. Wearing the dark night, forget about it, right? And we, we, we attribute these different kinds of, of scores to determine who is more spiritual than who. And, and here's something that I've noticed. Whatever our personal conviction is, typically is what the spiritual answer is. We kind of take what the conclusion we've come to and we've made it the godly standard. Now, hear me out on this. In all of those areas, it is important for you to come to a conviction. It's important for you to, to have an opinion about these things um, because you're going to have to act on it. The passage is not saying it's bad to have a conviction or it's bad to have an opinion about things that go beyond what is written in Scripture. What it is saying is don't use your understanding of that issue to puff yourself up and make yourself better than someone else because typically the rules we make favor us. I've got a six-year-old boy. I've, I'm very familiar with the concept that when we're playing a game together, the rules always change, and they always change in his favor. Um, you know, I, I am the equivalent of, you know, 15 feet tall to him in a basketball game, the difference of size me to him, and yet I can't beat him. Why? Because he's got like a 24-point shot that comes in at the end of the game, and he always, be, he always makes it, and he always wins. Um, this, this, is not, this is deep theology, guys. This is, the, this is what is going on in our hearts. We come up with standards. We come up with rules that make us better than somebody else. We, we very seldom come up with rules that cause us to lose. Most of the time, we come up with rules that show us to win. And when we go beyond what is written to puff ourselves up, we end up setting ourselves up for division within the church. I mean, Paul was saying that they're opinions about these things and the puffing up that was happening because of these opinions was a source of division within the church. Now, I was thinking of, wait, how can we help remember this and kind of cement this idea in our, in our minds and our hearts? And, you know, because it talks about puffing up, I, th I thought about balloons. And, you know, when, when you see a balloon, how big is this balloon? Daniel Hargis, you're at the very back of the room. How big is this balloon? Very small, thank you. It is a very small-looking balloon, especially from a distance. There's not much to it. But what happens when we begin to puff it up with other things? Just a secret life mission of mine was to blow up a balloon on stage, so check that off the bucket list. Um, when it's inflated with other things, it gets substantially bigger, doesn't it? Not because the balloon itself has any more anything. It's just been blown up with some other stuff. And this is what happens. And, and here's, here's the difficulty as we begin to, to blow that 
up. The difficulty is when we end up in community with other people who have also blown themselves up, eventually that'll cause them to separate and it'll cause us to blow apart. See, the danger in us blowing ourselves up and saying that we are better than one another is eventually it'll blow apart the togetherness that we were designed for. We have to be very, very careful about exporting our convictions and our opinions that go beyond what is written and using them as a scorecard to determining who is more spiritual than who. That's what was happening in, this, in the place of Corinth, and it was leading to great division. Um, the solution for that, of course, is found in verse 7. He calls them to humility. In, in a sense, he calls and reminds them to Remember how big they really were. They were just this big. Verse 7 says this. It says, for who sees anything different in you? In the original language, um, this is even more harsh. It's, it basically, he's saying, so what's so special about you? In other words, at the foot of the cross, it's level. We're all the same. Why do you keep trying to determine who's better than who? We're all the same. We're, we're all just an empty balloon when it comes to our value apart from being filled, not with our opinions, but apart from being filled by Christ. What do you have, he says, that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, everything good about us we've received, so what reason, what motivation, what possibly could compel us to argue about whose balloon is bigger? If we're all empty at the cross, filled with Christ alone. See, there's a danger in us puffing up with our opinions and our ideas that leads to division and a blowing apart of the church. We have to be careful to guard against that. That's the first truth we see from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But the second truth we see is is this. That's together... We're living with the king and not like a king. Together, we're living with the king and not like a king. This is verses 8 to 16 of this section. Now, these are difficult verses to interpret. And I think they're especially difficult for us to interpret as, you know, 21st century Americans because we don't think that sarcasm exists in the Bible. And so we read verses like the ones we're getting ready to read, and we have a hard time processing them because we think, surely the Apostle Paul was not tongue-in-cheek as he wrote this. Certainly he was not using sarcasm or irony to make a point. But that's exactly what he was doing. This is some sacred sarcasm we're getting ready to read in these verses. Um, And and what Paul is doing in these verses is he's really challenging the conception of the Christian life that the Corinthians had. The Corinthians, in their conception of the Christian life, had begun to think that it was all about their status and their position and what they could get out of it in this life because their life was pretty good and they were making some choices, it seems, that were allowing their lives to look even better. But Paul challenges their activity. Look at what it says in verse 8. He starts his, his sarcasm and his irony here. This is what he says. He says, already you have all you want. Now, I say this is sarcastic because... Did they really have all they want? 
Have you, have you ever met someone that has all they want? Um, very seldom, right? It wasn't that they truly had all they wanted. It's just he's making an exaggerated point saying, hey, life is pretty good for you guys. He goes on. He says, already you have become rich. Now, were they rich? Did they think of themselves as rich? Well, probably not. Um, we, we know from our passage we looked at last week, these were not famous people, uh, probably not wealthy people. They probably didn't consider themselves to be rich. I mean, most people don't. If you think about what people consider to be rich, it's usually a little richer than you are. You know, we're, again, we're the standard, we're the mean. So, you know, what is, what is a car that is too fancy? It's the car that you're driving plus the, the leather and the sunroof. You know, it's, it's just that much more. It's just whatever it is, just one step further. It's the car you're driving, two years newer model. Um, it's, you know, what, what is rich? It's an income that's, that's X amount of dollars more than you currently make. But not everybody feels that way. Sometimes we, we have reality checks that bring us back in, but a lot of times we determine richness based upon that. When Paul says that they were rich, I don't think that they were, were driving around in, in the fanciest of fancy or anything like that. I, I think that what was happening, though, was that their life was pretty comfortable. Their life was pretty good. So when we talk about being, being rich, uh, he's saying, hey, you know, those of you who have it pretty good, who, who have a lot of material things, enough for your needs. He continues, without us, you have become kings. Now, were they really kings? No, I don't think they were, they were ruling the city of Corinth. I mean, again, last week we saw that. They weren't in great positions of great prominence in their city. Um, but he calls them here, he says, you're, you're, you're kings, because what they were doing was their, their Christian life, their Christian world at that point was really benefiting them. They were, they were doing well. They were, they were making money. They were people of respect within their community. Paul goes on with, with the sarcasm here, and he says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. In other words, I really wish that what you thought was true, that you were in charge, that you were the sovereign ones, because if you were, then maybe you could help me out a little bit. And the reason why Paul says that is because after he describes their basically comfortable life, he contrasts that with the difficulty that he was currently experiencing. Look at what it says in verse 9. Paul writes and says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul's contrasting their life. The, The Corinthians' life was very comfortable. Paul's life and the apostles' life, though, was very, very difficult. He uses this, this picture of being last of all, of being a spectacle, and that was very uh, technical language in that day. See, when a Roman general would go off into battle and they would win a victory, they would come back to Rome with a parade carrying all the booty that they had won in battle, the spoils of war. And after all of the stuff and all the strong people, at the back of the line, there would be a, a set of people that were most despised of all. They were the weaklings. They were the ones who were rejected even by the culture that was conquered. And they would be brought back in this parade, and they would be taken all the way to the floor of the Colosseum, where they would be attacked by wild animals and gladiators and killed. And they were called the spectacle. They were the most rejected the weakest, they were a spectacle to all. What, what Paul is saying is, you guys are living a very comfortable life, but me and the rest of the apostles, 
It's quite different for us. You know, some people would look at this in verse, verse 10, and he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Now, did, what, he, what he was saying there is, again, he's, he's speaking in ironic terms. He's saying, look, our lives are very, very different, your experience and ours. And he's just drawing attention to that reality. He goes further and, and talks about some of the difficulties that he was experiencing as an apostle. It says in verse 11, he says, to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and we're buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. See, what Paul was highlighting was the dramatic differences between the lives of the the Corinthians and the lives of the apostles. And the implication was that the Corinthians, who were living this very comfortable life, looked at Paul and said, what's the matter with you? Why are you hungry? Why are you homeless? Why are you thirsty? Why are you going through all that you're going through? Conversely, Paul's looking at them and saying, what's happening over there that you're not experiencing some of the same opposition that I am? Two commentators on this passage. Gordon Fee says this. He says, the irony in this passage is devastating. How they, the Corinthians, perceived themselves masterfully overstated in verses 8 and 10 is undoubtedly the way they think that Paul ought to be. But the way Paul actually is set forth in the rhetoric of 11 to 13 is the way they all ought to be. William Barclay says this. He says, the Corinthians in their blatant pride were like the conquering general displaying the trophies of his prowess. The apostles were like the little group of captives, men doomed to die. To the Corinthians, the Christian life meant flaunting their pride and their privileges and reckoning up their achievement. To Paul, it meant a humble service, ready to die for Christ. In in the midst of this contrast between the life of the Corinthians and the life of the apostle, Paul calls them to imitate him, verses 14 to 16. He says, "I, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul was calling them to view the Christian life as he did. Now, was Paul calling them to go seek out being disrespected, to go seek out being hungry, to go seek out being homeless? I don't think that's fully what he's asking them to do. What I think he is asking them to do is to change their conception of the Christian life from the norm is that my Christian life will benefit my earthly life to this understanding that my Christian life is at odds with the agenda of this current world. And you know, this, this is a truth that we really need to wrestle with and come to grips with as believers in Christ. Because we are people, I I believe, who have lived much of our lives in a world that looks more like 
how the Corinthians were living. We, we, we've lived a lot of our lives in a world where it has benefited us socially to be a believer in Christ. Uh, you know, there, there was a time, and, and maybe that time even still exists, where it was helpful for someone who's developing business to be within a church. There was a time when it was helpful for a political candidate to espouse biblical values and concepts and to talk about their church attendance as a, a part of their platform. There, there, was, there was a time when affirming biblical values was, was celebrated. Um, there was a time when it was to our social gain in order to profess our faith in Christ. But that time and that experience, whether you believe it's, it's gone now or in the process of being gone, that time and that experience is the anomaly and not the norm. The norm of Christian experience is that when we live out our relationship with Christ, that we will be rejected by others. We will be mocked. We'll experience difficulty in this life because of our faith in Christ. That is far more the norm. And, and why is that normal as opposed to being celebrated? Well, who's our leader? Our leader is Christ himself. And how was he treated in this world? He was rejected. He had no place to lay his head. He was crucified on a cross. It should come as no surprise to us in the world in which we live if we find ourselves in an environment where it is no longer socially profitable to be a Christian. And and Paul wants that principle to be very clear within them because, you know what, the connection to the rest of this, so much of uh, divisions that come up based upon how we puff ourselves up, those are peacetime kinds of divisions. When, when we are not worried about what's happening in the world and we're just worried about what's happening and the people around us, we can get all kinds of bored and all kinds of weird and we can find all kinds of ways to divide. We can find all kinds of ways to puff ourselves up and say, I'm better than you or you're better than them or whatever and come up with these rankings in peacetime. When we realize that there is a war, there's a, a battle going on, there's a rejection of Christ that occurred 2,000 years ago but still exists within the human heart. When we see those kinds of things happening, we realize and we find ourselves in an environment like that, it causes us not to want to divide, it causes us to want to unite. Difficulty brings unity a lot of the time. And we could give you just a few examples of that. Think about what's happened in our community as a result of the tornadoes. Tornadoes come blowing through our city. When the tornadoes come blowing through, what happens is it, it creates unity among churches. Why? Because things are really good? No, because there's difficulty. The, the, the task just got bigger. We got focused on something else, and this hardship is able to bring people together. There weren't theological um, questionnaires that went out to determine who we could move bricks with. We just did it. Why? Because the difficulty drew us together. The difficulty created an opportunity to trust God with something larger than ourselves. Same thing is true when you, you, you have somebody who is a friend of a friend and they're diagnosed with cancer. And you hear about this or, or a death of a loved one or, or whatever it might be. You, you hear these things that come up and, and when, you, when you hear about those things, you, you immediately are, are drawn to those people. Your heart breaks. You want to help. You want to reach out. 
It creates unity. The, the difficulty creates unity. And, and I believe that one of the reasons why this life is hard is it's a part of creating unity among God's people. It's a part of us experiencing that unity by clarifying the reality of the issues, by showing what's important and what's not important. Difficulty does that. And I think Paul highlights this here for that reason. I think the second reason why Paul highlights this here for that is, is because there is a, a togetherness or a unity that comes with Christ when we go through difficulty. Now, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 of the fellowship that occurs within the sufferings of Christ. In other words, when we experience hardship and difficulties in this life, when we are rejected for the name of Christ, we have a fellowship and a closeness and an intimacy that develops with him because we experience that with him. Because he is with us in that suffering, in that persecution, in that rejection. We develop intimacy with him as a result of that. And the reason why it's important for us to go over this is that so much of the time we spend our lives thinking like the Corinthians, that, that our life is supposed to be lived like kings. When we think of our lives like kings, we think of our privilege and what we have, and, and all those things are reasons for us to divide. But if instead of living life like a king and we think of living life with the king, then that's a walk of faith through the same experiences that he had, rejected for the same reasons that he was rejected, but a fellowship that comes with him and fellowship with one another as a result. You see, it is critical and important for us as believers in Christ to realize who we are and to allow ourselves to be filled not with our own opinions and ideas that would cause us to blow apart and divide from others but to allow us to be filled with Christ alone that would attract us to one another. There's lots of reasons for us to divide, but Christ is the reason for our unity. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And uh, as they come, we're, we're going to be closing today, singing a song. This is the first time we've sung this song at Wildwood. Um, it's a song called Never Once. And I love this song, especially in connection with this passage, because it talks about life as a battleground, not as a peacetime. It talks about how there are scars and struggles along the way in life. That's, that's true. But as we sing that, as we think about that, we also get to sing the chorus that as we go through these things, and especially as we look back on the struggles and the difficulties we've gone through, we find an opportunity to find fellowship with Christ through them, because he is with us all the while in that, in that process. But also, according to this passage, it also allows us to have fellowship with one another as the process of difficulty clarifies what's important. So, we would invite you to stand now and join us as we sing.